Lord God, thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself. You didn't have to, Lord. You could have left us in the dark, but you have chosen in your love for us to reveal yourself to us. And you have revealed yourself most fully, most completely in Jesus Christ who came to earth, who was the exact representation of God the Father in human flesh here on earth. And so we thank you so much for Jesus in that he reveals you, Lord God. He is himself God in human flesh as well. But Lord, we thank you also for your word and you reveal yourself to us through your word. And Lord, I pray as we read your word this morning, you would speak to us. It wouldn't just be words on a page, but it would be truth that enters into our minds and enters into our hearts and changes us for good, changes us to your glory and to your praise. Holy Spirit, we just invite you again into into our midst, into the room right now and into the homes of all who are watching at home. Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. Teach us what is true. Change us to make us more Christ-like, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with a question this morning. What is your comfort in life and death? Where do you find safety and security in your life? And do you have any confidence, any comfort, any kind of assurance in death? Those are important questions right now to be asking ourselves and to be thinking about. What is your comfort in life and even into death? Can there be any comfort in death? Well, Christians can answer that question with confidence. I want to read to you um, the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Two long words, but basically a a question and answer format of articulating what true biblical Christians believe in the Heidelberg Catechism. And the very first question in the Heidelberg Catechism, the start of this declaration of what Christians believe, is this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Do Christians have any comfort in life? Do Christians have any comfort in death? Yes, we have the ultimate comfort in Jesus Christ. We belong to him. And I love that middle section where it says Jesus watches over us in such a way that not even a hair can fall from our head without it being the will of our Father in heaven. Isn't that wonderful comfort here and now in life? And isn't it amazing that that comfort isn't just for the present moment, as Dyer was praying, it's also for the future, even into eternity. And so when Christians die, we don't die. We go to be with the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity forever and ever. What a glorious 
glorious comfort we have in Jesus. My hope and prayer for this time together right now is that Christians would once again be overwhelmed and filled with the wonderful comfort we have in Jesus. So magnificent, so wonderful, this eternal comfort we have in Christ. And so I pray that over you, may you be overwhelmed and filled once again with the glorious comfort of Christ. And my prayer for non-Christians, and we know that some people have been watching online, and they're also very welcome to join us here as well. Um, So my my prayer and hope for non-Christians is they would call out to Jesus this morning as I preach, and receive this great comfort that we have in Jesus. And boy, now is a time in history where people need greater comfort. And so I preach to you this morning that that great comfort can be found in Jesus Christ. And if you aren't a Christian, you're so welcome. I pray you would know the comfort of Jesus when you leave here by the end of this service today. And we're going to start to explore this topic of the comfort of Christ by reading together from Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read Matthew 9 verses 14 to 34. Um, If you've got a Bible, turn there, and if not, it will appear on the screen beside me. So Matthew 9, verses 14 to 34. As Jesus passed on from there, oh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong bit, sorry. (laughs) Matthew 9, from verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. 
And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Quite a long passage, and my intention this morning is to focus on verses 14 to 26 in particular. And I have three points, as every classic good sermon has. Um, You know, sometimes I break the rules and preach nine or ten points, but this morning it's just three points. And my first point this morning is this. When Jesus comes, he changes everything. When Jesus comes, he changes everything. And I'm looking particularly at verses 14 to 17 and Jesus' teaching in those verses when I say this, because the story begins with disciples of John the Baptist coming to Jesus. And the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they say, hang on a minute, we're fasting, the Pharisees are fasting at this time, but you, Jesus, are feasting and having dinner. Do you remember a few weeks ago, we preached on the start of chapter 9, where Jesus was having dinner with sinners and tax collectors. And so the disciples of John the Baptist are like, you're supposed to be a religious leader. We're fasting, we're showing our zeal for the Lord, but you are having a party. You're feasting and eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so they're confused and and ask, what's going on? And Jesus responds with three illustrations in those verses, verses 14 to 17. The first illustration that Jesus responds with is the illustration of a wedding. Can you imagine if you were invited to a wedding, if you were one of the privileged few who are allowed to go to weddings these days, or, or think outside of the pandemic time and, and when we had big feasts at weddings. Can you imagine you, you were invited to a wedding celebration and you, you went to the church and you, you observed the ceremony, and then after the ceremony you went back to the reception venue and perhaps it's this great lavish venue that's probably more expensive than it needs to be, and it looks grand and fantastic, it's going to be a fantastic day, and you sit down and um, perhaps the best man stands up and welcomes you to the reception, and then he says, we're not going to have any dinner at all, we're all going to fast at this wedding, and we're all going to be very somber and mourn and be sad. You would What? No, that's not what happens at a wedding, is it? Everyone comes and they celebrate and they sing sing songs sometimes during the service when we're allowed to. And then they come back and they have a great dinner at the reception. And and usually the bride and groom or, or the mother and fathers of the bride and groom have really gone for it in terms of funding for that dinner. And, you know, it's the best food I ever eat when I get invited to a wedding. It's the only reason I go, really, is to get a nice three course meal cooked for me by fantastic stuff. You know, it's a celebration time. Weddings are a celebration. Jesus is saying, by quoting this illustration, um, (laughs) there we go, the banner has died. It's been dying for several weeks now, that one. Um, I would just lay it down, Joyce, if I were you. (laughs) That'll do. Jesus is using the illustration of a wedding to teach the disciples of John the Baptist. And he's saying to John the Baptist's disciples, I'm the bridegroom and I have arrived. I have come to earth. And so this is not a moment for fasting and mourning. 
This is a moment for rejoicing and celebrating and feasting, just like at a wedding where you feast and celebrate together. So this moment where Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world is a moment for all of Israel to rejoice and to celebrate and to feast together. He's basically saying, if you're still fasting right now, you don't understand what such joyful good news it is that I have come. The coming of Jesus transforms everything. Jesus turns mourning into dancing. He turns sorrow into joy. He turns fasting into feasting. It wasn't appropriate to fast at this moment when Jesus had come into the world. The saviour of Israel, the saviour of the world had come. It was time to celebrate. It was time to feast, not to fast. Then Jesus uses a second illustration, an old garment with a tear in it. And Jesus says, you wouldn't take an old garment and take a new piece of cloth and sew the new piece of cloth onto the old garment without treating the new piece of cloth. Because if you did that, when it rains, the new piece of cloth would contract and make the tear even bigger. So you, you'd just be wasting your time by taking this, this small piece of cloth and sewing it onto an old garment. You wouldn't be fixing the old garment. You'd be making the garment even worse in the long run, and you'd be wasting a new piece of cloth. Instead of turning that new piece of cloth into a completely new garment, you'd be ruining the old garment and ruining the piece of cloth. The implication that Jesus is bringing in this illustration is this. I'm not just a small piece of cloth that you can sew onto your old way of life and your old way of traditions. You know, some some people do this with Jesus. They, they have their old life, and then maybe they hear something of Jesus, and they say, oh, I quite like Jesus. I'll, I'll have him as well. I'm not going to change any part of my old life. I'm just going to join Jesus in a tiny little way. I'm kind of just going to add him to my life. And I'm going to carry on living the way I'm living life. I'm going to not think about Jesus at any point during the week, apart from Sundays when I go to church. He's just a little bit of cloth that you sew onto your old garment, but your, your garment is still the same old garment. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm not just a small piece of cloth that you sew onto an old garment. I'm a completely new way of living. It, don't wear the old garment. Put on the new garment of Jesus Christ. Embrace a new way of life. Take off the old and put on the new. Jesus transforms us when he comes. And thirdly and finally, Jesus uses this, met- this, um, this illustration of putting new wine into old wineskins. And this is exactly the same idea. I don't understand the science. Maybe we sh- maybe I should have got Dyer to preach this one because Dyer would explain the chemistry behind putting new wine into old wineskins. But I think the idea is that when the, wi- the new wine ferments in the old wineskin, it kind of grows. And, and, that, and because the old wineskin is old and hard, it would crack and break and burst, basically. So if you put new wine into old wineskins, you're not going to have a wineskin full of wine for you to drink. You're going to have a big mess and a broken old wineskin. It's not the right thing to do. And, and So what Jesus is saying is, don't take your old system of fasting, your old system of what religion is, your old religious ideas, and just pour Jesus into your old system and your old way of doing things. 
No. Jesus is so transformational when he comes that you need brand new wineskins. He changes your ways, way of thinking. He changes your entire life. He, cha- he changes, he transforms the people whom he encounters. When Jesus comes, a covenant of law where you had to obey God's commands in order to win his favour, is transformed into a covenant of grace where Jesus offers the love and favour of God freely and undeservedly to all who would simply believe in him. You don't have to earn your way into God's good books. You have to receive Christ and receive the gift of grace, unmerited favour. When Jesus comes, he turns a life of the letter where you're reading the Old Testament law and and you're looking at the little letters and you're saying, this is what our life must look like. And instead, he brings a life of the Spirit. Jesus ascends into heaven after his resurrection from the dead and pours out the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is Christ in you. And so it's not outside in, reading the law and that transforming your life. It's the Holy Spirit inside of you, transforming your heart and transforming your mind. So from the inside out, your life is transformed. Jesus transforms the Pharisees in this way. They were judgmental and they, and they spoke against all the outsiders and said, you need to do this and you need to do this and God is rejecting you for your sin. But Jesus comes and preaches a gospel of mercy. All who trust in Jesus, all who confess their sins, all who believe in Jesus can have their sins forgiven. So he transforms a message of judgment from the Jews into a message of mercy. And that's the message that we believe and we proclaim in this church that anyone is welcome to come into the kingdom of God. Anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ from from someone who thinks they're the worst of sinners, who thinks their life is a complete mess, they're so welcome to come to Christ Church Fairham. But But more than that, they are welcome to enter into the presence of God through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And, and maybe you don't think you're that bad, but you know that you've done things wrong in your life, and, and you might not think of yourself as the worst of sinners, but you still know that there's selfishness in your life and pride in your life. You too are welcome to come into the kingdom of God by believing in Jesus Christ. We preach a message of mercy in Jesus, not a message of judgment. Do you see what Jesus is teaching is? Don't pour new wine into old wineskins. Don't take a piece of new cloth and sew it into an old garment. Take the newness of Christ and let him completely transform the way you think and the things you do and your entire life. And so Christians, here's the challenge of what Jesus is, is teaching here. In Jesus, you don't just have a patch that's sewn into the, your old garment of life. Rather, you have one who changes every fibre of your being, every second of your time. So I want to ask you, are you living in this newness of life that Jesus has brought? Are you living every second in relationship with Jesus, such that he's transforming you and guiding you and leading you? Is he your everything, or is he just an add-on to the rest of your life? Because I tell you, true joy, true worship, true Christian life is found in saying, Jesus, you are my everything. You have transformed everything that I am. And therefore, everything that I say and do and think is, is just, just completely transformed by the love of Christ poured out into our hearts. And non-Christian, do you want transformation in your life? 
Do you want the comfort that comes now and the comfort that comes in eternity that comes through Jesus Christ? Well, receive Jesus by putting your faith in him, believing in his life, believing in his death on the cross, believing in his resurrection from the dead. Receive Jesus and receive this newness of life that Jesus is speaking about. In answer, this question comes about fasting and Jesus uses it as an opportunity to say, all your old ways of thinking is transformed by my coming into the world. My first point this morning, when Jesus comes, he transforms everything. Do you know how Jesus has transformed and changed your life? Now my second point this morning might sound quite odd based on what I've just said there. Because my second point is this. If ever there was a time to fast, it is now. If ever there was a time to fast, it is now. Look carefully at verse 15. So remember the context. John the Baptist's disciples come and say, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus, using these three illustrations, say, when I've come, it's transformed everything. It's not a time for fasting. It's a time for rejoicing and celebrating. This is what he says. Jesus says in verse 15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus doesn't rebuke John the Baptist's disciples for engaging in the spiritual discipline of fasting. He rebukes them and corrects them for fasting at the wrong time. He's not saying fasting is a wrong thing to do. He's saying fasting right now is wrong because now is the time for feasting and celebration because I, the Saviour, have come into the world. In fact, Jesus says explicitly in verse 15 that his disciples will fast. He says the the bridegroom, talking about himself, he's the bridegroom, will be taken away from them and then they will fast. So there is a time for fasting that is coming. And this is what happens in the Bible. Jesus comes the first time. And this is the moment for feasting and celebration. It's the story told in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus lives life here on earth. And he's perfectly righteous in all that he does. He's always good. He's always kind, always compassionate, never does anything wrong. And then Jesus, in love, dies on the cross. Not for his own sins, because Jesus committed no sin. But rather... In love, he takes upon himself the sins of others. And he dies for those sins. He takes those sins to the grave so that whoever would believe in Jesus would have their sins forgiven. Whoever would believe in Jesus would have their shame taken away. And instead of shame, they would be given honour. Isn't that a wonderful truth of the Christian good news? That our shame is taken and honour from God is given instead? He takes away our guilt. If you're feeling guilty this morning, the way to have your guilt taken away is by believing in Christ. For he carried your guilt upon the cross. And when Jesus takes your guilt upon himself, he gives you the gift of blamelessness. So before God, you don't stand guilty, but you stand blameless, righteous in his presence. We love this about Jesus. It's one of the reasons we say that Jesus' name is beautiful and wonderful and powerful. It's because he takes our shame and turns it into honour. He takes our guilt and turns it into blamelessness. So Jesus, Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. And then on the third day, on Easter Sunday, he is resurrected from the dead. He rises from the grave. 
in power. He defeats death. And so we associate Jesus' resurrection with the gift of eternal life, which Christians are given. For all who trust in Christ are given honour and blamelessness and forgiveness and the gift of eternal life forever and ever. And then after rising from the dead and appearing to his disciples, Jesus ascends into heaven. Jesus ascends into heaven. The bridegroom is taken away. And Jesus, right now, is in heaven, sat at the right hand of God the Father, reigning. He's Lord over heaven and earth. He reigns over all, sovereign over all. But he has been, he's been taken away for a period of time. And what the Bible says is, Jesus will come again. There's a second coming when Jesus will return. And that moment is also described like a wedding. Jesus is the bridegroom who comes. And the church, all of us, are like the bride. We're described as the bride of Christ, the church. And together we will, we will celebrate a great union together with Jesus as he comes to earth and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. There is a second coming of Jesus Christ. And it will be this perfect, glorious, wonderful wedding celebration. And you know what? There will be no fasting in that day. There'll be no fasting in heaven. You know, in fact, in heaven, it's described as a banquet. And, and wow, this is going to be so good. I can kind of imagine us doing our days and preparing food and then us all arriving for this great banquet feast at the end of the day. And everyone brings something and we just have this wonderful banquet with God sat at the table as well in heaven. This is what heaven's going to be like. There's going to be no fasting in heaven. Let me tell you, it'll be feasting and we'll feast and we won't get fat and it'll be great. We can eat everything we, everything we want. There'll be no more tears and no more pain. Only celebration and banqueting sounds good to me. So no fasting when Jesus comes the first time. That's what he's teaching to John the Baptist's disciples. Um, amongst his disciples, anyway. No fasting in heaven, but right now we're living in the in-between times. The in-between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. And Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken away, my disciples will fast. My disciples will set aside periods of time to go without food in order to pray and to press into God's presence and to ask him to move powerfully and mightily because we know the world's not perfect. We know we still need God to move in times such as these. And so times of fasting are saying, I really want God to move in this area of my life or I really want God to move mightily in this COVID pandemic which we're currently experiencing. So I'm going to set aside maybe 24 hours, I'm not going to eat, I'm going to drink water, but I'm not going to eat during those 24 hours, and I'm going to pray and press in and seek God and, and lift up all these things in prayer that I want God to move in. To pray, to, to fast, sorry, is to set aside time to pray. But it also teaches us an important spiritual truth. Fasting teaches us that Jesus is enough. We can go without food because Jesus is enough. And actually, when we seek the kingdom first, God gives us the things that we need. And so we as Christians can say, I'm going to take this time and I'm going to say food is less important to me than Jesus. And so I'm going to take this time and I'm not going to eat during this time. And instead, I'm going to seek Jesus in prayer. I'm going to spend my time reading the Bible. I'm going to spend my time, I'm just going to press into Jesus' presence. That's what it is to fast to seek him in prayer 
and to teach ourselves this great, important spiritual truth that Jesus is more important than food, and in fact, Jesus is enough. I think Jeff said last week, he was talking about Chinese Christians who had been persecuted for their faith and thrown in jail, and and everything had been taken away from them. And what they learned during that time, that Jesus really was enough for them. And, And we're lucky, we're not persecuted for our faith right now. But we we still need to teach ourselves this truth that Jesus is enough. And one way we can do that is by fasting and going without food and seeking God's presence. And I would say right now, perhaps more than any other time in our life, is a time where we should be seeking to fast. Isn't this a time when we want God to move mightily? Shouldn't we, out of love, be looking at the world, seeing those who are ill and saying, Lord, I want you to move and heal those people. Seeing those who are struggling with anxiety and loneliness and saying, God, I want you to move and do something about that. Seeing people who have lost loved ones and saying, Lord, I care for these people, would you move? And seeing those who are poor and thinking, actually, where are we going in terms of our economy right now? The poor are the ones who are going to suffer the most. Surely now is a time where we should be in love, saying, I need to spend time in prayer. I need to to be fast and asking God to move mightily in the people of those around me. Fasting is an act of love if you use that time to pray for others. And and so I think if there was ever a time for Christians to fast, it's now. Christian, heed Jesus' words. Jesus says his disciples will fast. If you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, are you practicing this spiritual discipline? And I think for different people, this will look different. I'm not going to say much about the practicalities of fasting because I think what John the Baptist's disciples were doing is saying there's a set way that everyone should fast. They should always fast on these days and for this period of time. And I think Jesus is kind of criticising that. And so I don't want to stand up the front and say, you must fast every Wednesday and every Friday. And and on Thursday, you should not eat any meat and fast for meat on Thursday. I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm just going to say, Jesus says his disciples will fast. And so how are you practicing that? Uh, for me, I, I struggle to go longer than 24 hours. So I will just set a 24-hour period and I will just drink water for 24 hours and I will spend as much time as possible in that 24 hours as I can praying, seeking God. And at times in my life, I've had a regular practice of doing that regularly. And sometimes I will just choose certain periods of time and say it's important for me to fast. I would encourage you, whoever you are, whatever you... Yeah, whatever your circumstances, there is a way that you, as a Christian, can live out this instruction from Jesus in fasting. Now, I know there are people with health concerns, so that fasting for 24 hours is completely impossible. But I wonder whether there's other things you can do. So maybe you, sometimes you can fast from things. So maybe you need to fast from TV or entertainment or the things that are sapping your time away from you right now in order to pray. Or maybe um, you want to fast from food for six hours in the morning, for example, in order to spend a morning in prayer. I'm, I'm not going to tell you about practicalities. But if you have questions, come and ask me. I'd love to help you start entering into this spiritual discipline of fasting and living out the life that Jesus calls his disciples to here in Matthew chapter 9. If you're not a Christian, you're probably thinking, what does this fasting point have to do with me? And the truth is, if you're not a Christian, I'm not telling you to fast. This is something disciples of Jesus Christ do in Matthew chapter 9. It's not something for people to do who don't believe in Jesus Christ. But if you're not a Christian, I'm not telling you to fast, but I do want you to hear the message of fasting. 
Fasting says Jesus is more important than food. I can go without food if only I have Jesus Christ. And you know, right now during this time, lots has been stripped away from us. There are things that we can't do that we would like to do if we could right now during this season. Things have been taken away. Things have been stripped away. And so we're left with this question, what is enough for me? What is my comfort during this time? How can I survive during this period when things, maybe relationships and friendships and, and people living in areas of lockdown have been taken, stripped away from you? Maybe your, your job perhaps has been stripped away from you because many people are not doing well in terms of losing their job right now. Maybe... There are, there are societies and clubs and, and relationships that have been taken away. What is enough for you? What is your comfort during this time? And what fasting says, Jesus is enough. Jesus is my comfort. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my sure and solid foundation through all things I can trust in Christ. And so, if you haven't accepted Christ, if you don't know Jesus, I would say to you, during this time, why not reach out to Jesus and see if he can comfort you, and, and see if he can be with you and move in your life during this time. Just pray to him now. Pray to him now. Lord Jesus, I want to know this comfort. I want to know this security. I want to know this foundation. I want to know this one who is so good that people would choose to go without food in order to enter into his presence. So Jesus changes everything when he comes. If there was ever a time to fast, it is now. And thirdly and finally, I want to bring a point that's all about the hope of res resurrection. So Jesus brings this teaching about fasting. And then he does several miracles, doesn't he, in Matthew chapter 9. There's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and she reaches out and touches his garment. And he turns and says, take heart, my daughter, your faith has made you well. And she's made well. That's in verses 20 to 22. Then there's two blind men in verses 27 to 31 who are healed, who receive their sight. There's a mute man who has a demon and the demon's cast out and he speaks and it's it's amazing miracle. But I want to focus on verses 23 to 26 and this miracle of raising a girl from the dead. Isn't that amazing in verse 23 to 26? She's, she's not dead. She's sleeping, reaches out her hand and lifts her up and she rises from the dead. It's an amazing miracle. And we could simply say this on the basis of that miracle. Jesus has the authority to raise people from the dead. Isn't that amazing? Jesus has authority over life and death. And he can offer resurrection. And so this is why we say Jesus is our comfort in death. Because he raises those who believe in him to life everlasting. Wow, what power has Jesus Christ? Let's worship him, the one who has authority over life and death. He raises this little girl back to life. But I think we can say more about this miracle as well. Because there are clear parables, uh, parallels between the teaching that Jesus brought and the miracle that Jesus then does. Jesus is saying, don't mourn right now, don't fast right now, but rejoice for the bridegroom is here, the bridegroom is with you. And then he goes to a funeral where people are mourning and the way they used to mourn is apparently playing the flute. Um, back in the day, and there was a great commotion, probably wailing and screaming. This little girl was dead, and so everyone's causing this great commotion of grief and mourning. And Jesus says, go away. Stop mourning. She's only sleeping. So can you see the par parallels there? He's teaching these people about not mourning, for Jesus has come, the bridegroom has come. And then he does a miracle where he says, stop mourning, go away. She's not dead. She's alive. She's sleeping. 
Jesus' coming is so powerful, is so transformational, is so wonderful, is such good news, that when he comes, he brings the hope of resurrection. And so even this funeral moment is turned into a moment of celebration. Can you imagine the ruler, when he sees his daughter alive and well, he's come to Jesus and said, come and heal my daughter, she's dead. And there's a great commotion going on, and then the ruler, and then the little girl gets up, and they they hug and embrace, and there's a moment of, she's alive, hallelujah, praise God. Jesus turns the commotion and the flute playing of a Jewish funeral into something glorious and wonderful and a celebration. And the way he does it is with this teaching with this message of hope of resurrection. And so as Christians, we believe that when Jesus rose from the grave, he burst open the door of the grave and he made a way so that all who trust in Christ would follow him through that door, out from the grave into life and life eternal. And this little girl's resurrection from the dead serves as a reminder to us today of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the saints. This is a fundamental part of the newness of life that Jesus brings. You know, this new wine that we pour into new wineskins, this new garment that we put on, has as part of it, maybe one of the ingredients of the new wine that Jesus pours into our lives, is the hope of resurrection taught and shown in this amazing miracle. And you know, the hope of resurrection, just like Jesus and being in relationship with him, utterly transforms my life. So the hope of resurrection also permeates everything I feel and think and do. It even changes the way I fast and pray. You know, previously, before Jesus came and brought the hope of resurrection, I might, I might have fasted and prayed in desperation, thinking, what's going to happen? I don't know. I'm so desperate, God, for you to move. But now, after Jesus, we can pray and fast in a different way. Lord, I'm desperate for you to move, but I know that you have already come and won my forgiveness upon the cross and, and defeated death in your resurrection. And so even though I'm desperate for you to move during this time, during this season, I'm also filled with hope that you've already done an amazing work here on earth and that you are coming again. So we, so before Jesus, we might have prayed and fasted with, with just mourning and sorrow and, and hopelessness, but now we can pray and fast with great hope in the knowledge that Jesus has defeated death and we have hope of resurrection. And that is such an important message now, isn't it, for Christians to know we need not fear COVID because there is hope of resurrection for anyone who believes in Christ. I would encourage you, preach to yourself the doctrine of the resurrection of the saints. If you believe in Jesus, he will raise you up once you die. That's the comfort in death, that we will be raised up by just as this little girl was only sleeping. So we can say of Christians who die, they're only sleeping. They will be raised up once again. They will enter into the new heavens and the new earth. And that hope turns into joy. And that joy turns into worship. And that worship turns into the confidence and the faith that Jeff was calling us to last week. This hope of resurrection permeates our life in such a way that we can be happy, we can be confident, we can be filled with faith, we we can take risks for the kingdom of God even here and now. 
in the current circumstances we find ourselves in. And so I hope that this passage in Matthew is encouraging to you. I want you to know that when Jesus comes, he transforms everything. Don't don't add Jesus to your life, but let Jesus be your life and transform everything you are. Let's use this time to fast and pray. Let's press into the presence of God in prayer. Let's Let's teach ourselves and proclaim that Jesus Christ is all we need. We do not need food, in a sense, because we rely solely on Christ. And so we can spend time fasting and pressing into his presence. And let's cling to the hope of future resurrection. That means we can have hope eternally, joy eternally, faith eternally, comfort in life right now, and comfort even into death we will be raised up. Jesus will raise us up and we will enter into eternal life. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we recognise that when you came to earth the first time, it was a time for feasting. It was the moment when the Saviour had come and the disciples were right in eating with you and even inviting sinners and tax collectors to join in with the meal Lord, we know that your first coming was a reason to celebrate, and we celebrate your death upon the cross. We celebrate your resurrection from the dead. We celebrate all the miracles and the teachings you brought in your life at your first coming. And we also look to your second coming and know that you are coming back, Jesus. And that will be a time for feasting and banqueting. And Lord, we long for that day and we cannot wait for that moment. But Lord, we recognize that now we are here on earth and we're in the in-between moments. And there will be pain and there will be struggles and there will be difficulties during this season. Lord, I pray that even through the challenges and trials, every second of our lives would be permeated with the hope of resurrection that we have in Christ. Thank you that we will not remain in the grave, but you will raise us up after we die and that we might enter into eternal life. And I pray that that hope would be strong in our hearts and minds and would yet strengthen our inner beings so that we might live in faith and confidence and worship towards you. Lord, I do do pray for this challenge of fasting and ask that we would do that in a worshipful, grace-filled and spirit-filled way. And I pray you give us wisdom to implement this in our lives. And Lord, may we help one another to do that and and ask questions of one another and challenge each other and, and make recommendations to one another, that we might really live out what you say your disciples will fast. And so I pray we as a church and we as individual Christians would fast at certain times, engaging in that discipline. And Lord, I pray during those times we would know and learn all the more that you are enough for us. You are all we need. You are our great saviour. You are our great champion. And we love you. You bring us joy. You bring us love. You are all. We, you bring us the strength to carry on, actually. Even, even in the food we eat, the way that works is through the gift of, of God in the food, giving us energy to live. And so we, I pray that as we fast, we would recognise that you, Lord God, are our great provider and all we need. We thank you for this message of hope. We thank you for this message of truth. And we ask that it change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.